0: the eighth episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast, brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management. My name is Michael Taylor. I'm the editor of businessdesk.com in the Northwest. I'm a journalist and sometime Politico. Good morning to my partner in crime,
1: Mr. Maguire here. Thanks very much, Michael. And a warm welcome to our very own Tyson Fury impressionist, albeit one listener, somebody we all know, Martin Bryant, Mr. Tech, thought you did a very passable Hacker T-Dog impersonation. Have you you been stopped in the street? Anybody wanting to hear that impression?
0: We're just normal men.
1: (laughs) Now, if you've not heard Michael's impression of the Gypsy King from last week, you can check it out on Twitter. It went down very well. If you keep going on about that, you big dosser, I'll put you (laughs) on your backside. See, he's getting carried away now. He's very uh, hyper today. Uh, too much orange juice. I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. Been another big week for the Northern Spin podcast. In Denmark, we shot up. 67 places to number 55. We also went up 52 places over the weekend in France. I don't know what uh, the people of France were doing other than listening to the Northern spin. Today, Michael, I'm going to take you out of your comfort zone. I'm never in my comfort zone with you, Chris. I'm going to take you out of your comfort zone that you're never in with me today. More so than I did last week when I asked uh, asked you to give advice to the Tories on how they could win the next general election. And uh, I thought you did a good job there, uh, as you could. Now, like me, You weren't in favour of Brexit. So today we're going to explain together and you're going to explain how the UK can make Brexit work. Are you up for it? Yeah, I'll give that a go, Chris. And at the risk of
0: repeating myself, though, thinking about this week's show, in fact, at the risk of repeating myself even more than Rishi the robot (laughs) saying the same answer to the four different questions... He's yeah. terrible, isn't he? Did you see him on Laura coonsberg?
1: It's just, let's hold our nerve, everyone. Let's hold our nerve. He, he doesn't do that very well. We are in course in touch with our allies. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, he is a bit robotic. Anyway,
0: at the risk of repeating myself, Chris, it's been another tough week for the Tories. How often have we said that on this podcast?
1: It's about as often as we mentioned Ben blogger you know. Indeed. So I'll talk you
0: through my weekend. On Saturday evening, I got depressed watching Question Time from Clacton from Thursday night with an audience comprised only of 2016 Leave voters. So we took the dog out for a walk, got an ice cream on a muggy night and saw a big fight outside Marple's Co-op. All very exciting.
1: Now, if if you'd put on your Tyson Fury impression there, you could have said and you could have completely diffused that situation, but I bet you didn't do that. I didn't
0: know, but I have to say, my wife, Rachel, was fantastic in de-escalating the situation. What did she do? She just... She, she spoke to one of the uh, people involved in the fight and spoke to him on a human level using his name and urged him to just stop. And just, it was amazing. No, Transformational. Very, very sensible. Just treating people as humans, you know, rather than, hey, hey scally, scumbag, or whatever else epithets were being thrown around. Just dealt yeah. with it really well. No, very no, sensible. It's, it's, it's about the, you know, we're, we're big on this, dehumanization, and we're probably going <laughs> to drift into a territory where maybe I do a little bit more of that myself today. Well,
1: We'll see. We're going to talk about rising interest rates and the mortgage time bomb, which I think could finally sink the Tories. I think it's massive. I think it's bigger than the energy crisis. I'm also interested to see how some of the Tory MPs like Jonathan Gullis, an arch Brexiteer and Jake Berry have really waded into this now. I think they see it as an opportunity for them to try and score a few points because they know they're on the precipice of getting uh, deselected or, or losing at the next general election.
0: I don't think they'll get deselected, but I genuinely think that their electorates will, you know, kick them out of office. Is no, I actually, you, meant, meant? Yeah, yeah, I
1: meant I meant we'd lose the next general election rather than yeah, be deselected. True. But, but both of them are on a slippery slope. Right,
0: so yeah, we've got a patch show for you today. We're going to be also talking all things music and Glastonbury, and we're talking about United Utilities and emissions into the into the uh, the Irish Sea. Terrible situation there up in Blackpool. Um, I've I've been to Morecambe again. I'll be telling you about my my trip up there. But yeah we've got a packed show for you but before we go to our first break i just want to say thank you once again to our producers what media the kings of video content creation they turn our weekly ramblings into this hit weekly podcast and youtube show they make us feel like part of the team and on that note we're going to our first interval
1: Fi real estate management is not your traditional property company Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than $1 FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality.
0: So welcome back to the main part of the Northern Spin podcast. So our downloads are up 33% in the last 30 days. If you want to reach a growing audience, please get in touch. So, um, what we're going to talk about today, Chris? What's first on this
1: packed agenda? We're going to talk about Brexit as well, because uh, my daughter's birthday is the twenty fourth of June. So, the twenty third of June is always a big day in our house because we're excited about her birthday, but also it's the uh, anniversary of the Brexit referendum. It's now seven years. Can you believe seven years since the Brexit referendum? It feels like it's been longer. There was an interesting poll last week, commissioned by former prime minister, Tony Blair, of the Tony, well not commissioned by him, of the Tony Blair Institute. More than 50% of people, and they questioned, 1,525 adults were questioned about uh, about the UK and were asked, "Were was the UK wrong to leave? These are some of the findings. 34% still believe that Brexit was the correct decision. 18% of leave voters said the decision was wrong that's interesting because we're going to talk about the um, we're going to talk about question time and they did a survey and 20% of the people who voted for brexit would now change their mind nearly 80% of the people questioned by the tony blair institute believe the uk should have a closer relationship with the eu in the future and 43% want the uk to rejoin the eu which i don't think is going to happen now clearly we're not going to reverse the Brexit votes. There's no time in you and I wasting our energy uh, on that discussion. Um, but whoever wins the next general election and all the money at the moment would be on Labour. They've clearly got to embrace and they've discussed Brexit and secure a Brexit. Um, what's your take? Yes,
0: yeah, so I still really visibly recall the morning after the vote. So I've been involved in the Remain campaign on the day that Joe Cox was murdered, if you remember. Um, a couple of weeks before the actual vote, I'd organized what we hoped would be an agenda changing event. And Gordon Brown was our headline speaker. He came along to that. Actually, he wasn't. John McDonald was the headline speaker. He pulled rank and made himself the top bill and drained all the energy out of the room, if I remember rightly. But anyway, um, Gordon Brown did make a great speech. That's what the TV cameras all turned up for. But even then, we felt it was slipping. In a discussion in the green room beforehand, I remember Gordon Brown describing the campaign as elites talking to elites. And, and he was right. Um, but his speech that day never made the news for quite obvious reasons, as we now know. At the time, I was commuting into Manchester from where I live in Marple, and I sat next to an older guy called David on the train, who I would got to know over the last couple of years beforehand. And he sat next to me on the train. He looked at me. We were both drained and in shock at the result. And he turned to me and he said, you know what, Michael, the thickos have shafted us. And I just thought, oh my God, what a horrible way to think about, you know, your fellow human beings. But at the same time, I have vacillated and held that view. You know, I do get quite angry about it. And watching Question Time the other night with some of the some of the opinions that were expressed on that, I do think people were were genuinely conned, and although that sentiment doesn't does have a grain of truth in it, it's 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 proved really difficult to move on from. And you know, and in my peer group, and it may be even be words that I've used myself. You know, we rage at different demographic groups. Boomers, you mentioned as well, Chris, the the people who voted for Brexit seven years ago. It's, it's fair to say as well, a large proportion of the people who voted for Brexit are now in fact dead, because so, it was such an older, you know, it was tilted so much in favor of older people as well. I've heard the phrase that, I've heard people say things like, not everyone who voted for Brexit was racist, but every racist voted for Brexit. Um, a phrase called gammon, which is widely used, particularly by younger people to reflect older older people with high blood pressure and very pink faces. You know, they think that they're the demographic entirely responsible for Brexit, and, it, and it's become a way of describing things. Things get described as a bit Brexit, which means it's kind of a bit rough around the edges and a bit, you know, white. Um, so this weekend, in between watching pointless scraps outside my local co-op and hanging out with my very diverse extended family, many of, many of whom voted to leave, I don't doubt, I've been trying to think it through because the margin to vote in 2016 was so slender, I assume that a conciliatory soft Brexit was on the cards. And I think the stats that you read out before, Chris, as well also bear this out, that there is no national consensus. There is no, we voted, that's democracy, suck it up, it's gonna be like this. So it's almost like we need a reset and a commission to say, how can this country come up with a better Brexit? How can we have something, maybe like a citizen's jury, pick a group of people, a more representative sample, form a citizen's jury of our peers and come up with a plan for something and an agenda, a top six list of priorities that this country could do. Because frankly, that's the only way we're going to get through it. I think as well, we have to seriously address the howl of the people who don't usually vote. So I know uh, council wards like Brinnington and Central in Stockport, which in the last election had 18% turnout. They were voting over 50% turnout. They are, pe- they are people who never vote. And I've heard it said on Facebook by people who don't normally vote in any elections. This is the one thing I voted for. They're not taking it away from me. So however much we don't like the result, and I'd still don't. And I kind of agree with what Alistair Campbell said on the program the other night as well, which you're going to come on to. And um, you saw it as well, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't see it all. Um, I do plan to watch it, but yeah, I saw I think you clips should. on social media.
0: Yeah, Um the audience was made up solely of Leave voters, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and and also what was interesting about that is that apparently they couldn't find a government minister to talk in favour of Brexit and what difference it had brought. So they wheeled out John Redwood, yeah. which I think is probably the level that it's uh, the level. I mean, they know the Conservatives and Labour that they see Brexit as a toxic subject, and certainly yeah. Labour's not going to touch it until yeah. after the election.
0: So I was I was impressed with Arnon Menon on the program, the kind of intellectual, I've, I've put on an event, an event with him in the last few years, really interesting guy, big Leeds United supporter that he's from Leeds. Um, he, he came up with a methodology that said that the country's divided basically into pret a places and Greg's places. And I think Manchester's an interesting example of somewhere that's both as I walk past several Gregs this morning with queues outside, but it's also got pret But this whole swathes of the country don't have a Pret, and, and um, they're the places that voted leave, yeah. which is, a, anyway. And it, But one thing, that I think you, you noticed as well, didn't you, Chris, that Alistair Campbell said on the programme that um, basically the people who voted for Brexit in that room in Clacton had been lied to. And I don't think they like hearing that.
1: I don't think they necessarily liked hearing it, but I think most people would now accept that um, Boris Johnson and I was told off for referring to him as Pinocchio seventy three times last week. So why? Um, because um, it was the uh, it's my normal um, you know uh, impact group that I go to and uh, ask for their opinions. And uh, he's a liar, though he's a proven liar. He is a proven liar. He is a proven liar. But the point was that I think most people would now accept. That the uh, promises that were made at Brexit by by this cabal of people, we were lied to. Um, I think Alistair Campbell. See, Alistair Campbell. I look to Alistair Campbell now as a um, as, as somebody whose opinion I actually trust. Um, and uh, and I know he's you know, waving the flag. I mean, I, I do like his podcast with Rory Stewart because they do have a bit of back and forth as well. But but he called out Boris Johnson um, a long time ago, as did, um, you know, uh, as did Rory Stewart as well. And he said, yeah, we were lied to. Um, I think the fact that 20% of people in the room said they would change their mind now was interesting. I think it was an interesting experiment by the BBC. It's important to remember that only 52% of the population voted in favor of Brexit. And so, so if 20% were to change their mind, it would be a seismic shift. Absolutely. I also accept, of course, that just because I know people have died. Just because I accepted, uh, just because I voted to remain, I do accept the majority rule. I think what's interesting is um, the, there's been a poll that's been done and it's, it's, it's now voted very heavily in favour of remain. But that's a lot of that is because the young voters who previously couldn't vote because they were too young are now voting and they're yeah. saying this isn't what we want. Yeah. Um, I want to want to sort of pin you down, in my, if, if I may, on sort of Keir Starmer and in terms of Labour's position on Brexit, because... Keir Starmer does get a lot of stick for changing his mind a lot and not having many clear positions on many things. Okay. Okay. Now, they've set out Labour's five-point plan. Have you noticed everything's a five-point plan to make Brexit work? Do you know why that was? Why they do five points rather than three or four? um, No, I don't. It's because there were
0: five pledges on the 1997 uh, Labour campaign, which was the most successful Labour election campaign since 1945, and it had five
1: pledges. But I look at what the Conservatives have done and what Rishi Sunak's done with his five promises as well. It just seems to be five seems to be the magic number. It is. Um, yeah. It's interesting there. Now, Rishi Sunak's government, he knows, and he knows, of course, um, that 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 they can't make any concessions on Brexit because the right of the party, the very vocal, you call it the thick right of the party, won't allow it. Mm-hmm. Keir Starmer's in a sort of similar position. Um, I listened to a really interesting interview with Lord uh, Time. He, uh, he was talking on the Westminster show today, and he was talking about the fact that Oxford University is celebrating a big anniversary. And he was saying, the issue is no politician is willing to grasp this issue of Brexit because they're worried about losing the Red Wall votes. Now, the Conservatives can't do anything because they are literally dead men walking at the moment. And and we talk about the Ming vase. Keir Starmer's afraid to touch it for the same reason as well. Um, I, I, I don't know what your view is, but it looks as though this has been kicked into the long grass until after the election.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a mistake. Um, I think they should uh, say we are going to confront it. I think the five pledges that, that Starmer's come out with are a way of kicking it into the long grass, but instead they should grasp it and say, yeah, we're, we're going to you know, institute a commission, a citizen's jury, and work out a Brexit that everybody can can agree on. Interesting issue. I think we should look more at citizens' juries in future editions, by the way. Um, anyway, Chris, you want to talk about rising interest rates and mortgages. Um, do you think this is an issue
1: that could sink the Tories? Yeah, I generally do. I, I really do. And I'm going to take a leaf out of uh, Jamie Corbyn's book, and I'm also going to take a leaf uh, out of Keir Starmer's book as well, because when they're at the dispatches at uh, Prime Minister's Q&A, they try and personalise it. So it's very easy for us to sit here now talking about about this mortgage time bomb. But I'm going to talk about somebody called Jenny. I can name Jenny. She's a friend. She's a listener to the podcast as well. Jennifer Smith, partner of law firm Forbes. Now, full disclosure, Jenny is not pleading poverty here. Jenny is not looking for sympathy but I put an appeal out on LinkedIn to say we're going to be talking about the mortgage time bomb has anybody got any opinions so and she's were,
0: all right with you discussing her personal finances she's on a shared podcast it. that's the 15th highest rated in Denmark
1: yeah well I hope so I mean she shared it Okay. she, she shared it on LinkedIn so it's, it was there for public perusal okay. the point she's making she's got two kids just returned from mat leave she's very she did a brilliant picture of her returning to work because I think what she's trying to do is trying to take away some of the, the issues that people don't feel like Able to talk about which is childcare. It's a big issue. And she was saying, I'm going to quote her now childcare costs are crippling. Our mortgage is £1,400 per calendar month. Our nursery invoice is £1,600 per calendar month. That includes a 33-30 hours of free childcare, a 10% sibling discount, and some tax-free childcare. It's ludicrous. Childcare has to be considered part of our national infrastructure. Now, I was talking about this with the lads at White Coppers Cricket Club, mentioning this same quote, and, and, and one of our lads said, listen, I haven't got, I don't earn £3,000 a month and he's got a good job. Um, So he said that would completely finish him off. I also had another interesting statistic uh, from Donald Moore, chair of One and All, a top, top guy. He, uh, in Stockport, regular listener to the Northern Spin podcast, he pointed out 37% of children in Greater Manchester in poverty Half of them have working parents. So this is the point I'm trying to make, is that rising interest rates and soaring mortgage costs won't just hurt the poorest demographic, it will hurt the middle earners who traditionally are Tory voters. Now, the Resolution Foundation, which uh, which I think is now run by a former Conservative MP called David Willis, if my memory serves me correct. But he's the chair of it. Yeah, he's the chair of it. Um, they came up with statistics saying that people looking to remortgage their homes next year will pay an average of 2,900 pounds a year more. Now that's gonna dwarf the energy crisis uh, and there can't be a bailout. The problem that Rishi Sunak's got is he's made his number one priority reducing inflation. He said he's gonna half it by the end of the year. It remains stubbornly high at 8.7%. It didn't drop last week like it was expected to. Now in the Eurozone, it's around 6% and in the US it's around 3%. Now this is the problem. Labour quite rightly gave independence to the Bank of England. So the Bank of England have only got one weapon, which is to uh, increase interest rates. But that's a very, very blunt tool because what it does, it penalises the poorest more because a bigger percentage of their income goes to pay rent and goes to pay their mortgage. Now, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak understandably have ruled out financial support packages because all that will do, it will undermine the uh, the fight on inflation. This is the point we've made before on this
0: podcast, is that of those five pledges... And I made this point at a a discussion I did last week with Northwest business leaders. Rishi Sunak's five pledges, two of them contradict one another. He wants to grow the economy and lower interest rates. A, he doesn't have the power to lower interest rates. As you said, the the Bank of England is independent. And the Bank of England is literally pushing the economy into a recession in order to take all the heat out. So he can't have it
1: both ways. It's impossible. The point is he wants to lower inflation rates. I mean, he doesn't talk about interest rates. I want to lower inflation rates and I want to grow the economy at the same time. There is a train of thought actually, and nobody would admit this, is that that politicians actually want repossessions and they want a recession and they want some companies to go under because that will make people you know wake up and smell the coffee and cut their spending but i don't think it's as i don't think it's as easy as that and and what you're seeing...
0: and i noticed it, as well today that uh, jeremy hunt has got together with some of the big retailers he's getting them around the table retailers banks um petrol retailers obviously the oil companies but businesses like euro garages and asda who we've spoken about on this podcast before, and he's getting them around the table and saying, "What are you doing to lower the impact of rising prices on the consumer?" And he could he could sort this in a stroke. He could institute a comp- Competition and Markets Authority investigation into pricing by supermarkets, particularly of staple food items, and it'd sort the problem out. Well, yeah. it wouldn't sort the problem out, but it would it would go some way to taking a lot of the heat out of the uh, rising rising
1: uh, cost of living. What's What's really upset and really hurt the Conservatives this last week is that they've kept talking about interest rates being the reason why inflation is so high. And obviously, what you're now seeing, you're now seeing that we're a year on, 14 months on from Ukraine. And they expected when the energy price was to have dropped comparatively from this time last year, you'd see a drop in interest rates. You see a drop in inflation rates. The problem is our core inflation rate, which takes out energy, is still really, really high. Um, what I do find interesting is the way some of the red wall... MPs, Conservative MPs, have now waded into it. So um, your mate, Jonathan Gullis. don't don't call, don't call
0: him my mate.
1: No, absolutely, probably the MP that you least like, and yeah. Sir Jake Berry. It's a have, very long list. Yeah, they've basically they've they've. I've mentioned before they're on a slippery slope. I mean, the Conservatives have basically said if you've got a if you've got a majority of less than fifteen thousand, there's a chance you're going to lose your seat. So clearly, both of them would. Now, Jonathan Gullis, who's the Tory MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, has called on Jeremy Hunt to introduce mortgage relief for struggling homeowners. Now, what he forgets is he was a rampant Brexiteer and the impact, and we touched on it in the first part of the show, the impact of Brexit on the economy cannot be underestimated. Jake Berry also called on the government to look at reintroducing mortgage interest rates at source, um, which was scrapped under Labour. Ever the opportunist, Barry yeah. has uh, previously blamed the blob, the civil service, for the problems of Brexit. He was been interviewed last week. He accused the Bank of England of being asleep at the wheel in not keeping inflation below 2%. Incidentally, I think he's actually got a little bit of validity with that point. I think the Conservatives have been slow to react. But what you, Sorry, the Bank of England has been slow to react. But what you're going to see increasingly, you're going to see the Tories point the finger at everybody else except themselves. And I say this as a small case C conservative, the Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, is going to cop it a lot more. And like you just mentioned it, you're going to talk about supermarkets and uh, greedflation and whether or not they're passing on those, um, you know, savings back to the consumer. And also, and I thought, I thought Labour made a good point this weekend when they said that they look at the banks, you know, the banks are increasing interest rates or interest rates are going up, but that's not being passed on to the savers. can I ask you a quick question about Labour? Because yes. I said to you before I'm not a spokesman
0: for the Labour Party, although you yeah, often
1: try yeah. to pe- paint me into that corner. But go on. Yeah, it's just that I mentioned before about what's Labour's plan to deal with Brexit. And I don't think there's a I don't think there's a big difference when it comes to inflation and interest rates. I don't think there's a big difference between Labour's plan and the Conservative plan. Labour have set out another five-point plan. On how they would help, uh, you know, tackle surging mortgage rates. I think it's a little bit lightweight. I heard, I heard a snippet, not the whole interview, with Rachel Reeves, who I do like, I respect. I think she's going to be a formidable chancellor. Um, as always, she reverted back to a stock response of saying that we'll introduce a windfall tax for high energy companies, I mean, this is the same answer. I mean, that's basically paid for all the problems in the world. They haven't really got an answer, have they? If you're being honest, Michael, no. Labour haven't really got an answer.
0: No, I think, Chris, what what you're doing, again, is you're, you're reducing Labour's policy to a single soundbite and then going, and there it is, it's got no detail in it. You haven't actually made a serious attempt to understand what Rachel Reeves has said, other than to try to get a rise out of me. in this discussion, and you've come up with a confected set of stats to trivialise a really, really interesting and important subject. They have got quite a detailed plan to address the issues of how the banks are operating towards consumers. And I gave due credit earlier to what Jeremy Hunt is doing in getting the supermarkets, the oil companies, the banks, and the energy companies around the table, and to say, what are you doing to reduce the impact? That is in a direct response to what Labour's five... Uh, suggestions, five again, were, were last week. I think Rachel Reeves has come up with a very credible plan, particularly on uh, letting people move on to an interest only mortgage without penalties and to actually change the rules on that. Um, none of these are things that have to be paid for in it as a giveaway by Labour, by the way. They're things that they can do in legislation in order for the banks to use the excessive profits that they've been making in order to reduce the impact on consumers during a cost of living crisis. Um, also, there's the uh, uh, stay of execution on things like repossessions, which I think is an entirely reasonable request for, um, for the government, any government to make of banks. And I think they, they're all generally really sensible, well thought through plans. Yeah, I, but there's gonna
1: be no financial package, but it yeah, is but a question Yeah, Labour done? Yeah, it's, it's- They're not in government. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting, but I generally think that that this uh, mortgage time bomb is going to be the thing that finishes the conservatives off i'm going to move the conversation on to um the tragedy we all saw it unfold last week ocean gate titan tragedy where five people died during uh, an expedition to the titanic we've spoken about this as a family more than probably any other story that we've spoken about for a long time because um, we were saying oh if they come out alive this will be turned into a film etc cetera, etc cetera. you can see it coming and then we saw the if you like i mean would if I had offered you a chance to have gone down on that uh, Ocean Gate Titan device, would you have gone down on it? Oh, of course, I wouldn't. Yeah. yeah,
0: ridiculous.
1: Yeah, no, but 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 even somebody, you know, if they said, look, it would have cost hundred and fifty thousand pound, but if you want to come down on there and see it for yourself for free, you know, would you have done it? But we spoke about it as a family, um, and um, it was uh, because we're 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 fascinated by the Titanic, but I saw it, and it was just an accident, a tragedy waiting to happen. What's interesting is how the narratives changed slightly. So originally had this conversation where people were clinging to hope. They heard ultrasounds, et cetera, et cetera. There's hope that they're alive. Um, when well, I think people in the know knew that it was always going to end the way it has. Barack Obama, the um, you know US president, former US president, compared the blanket media car- uh, coverage. He compared it to the lack of publicity for the hundreds of asylum seekers who drowned in recent weeks off the uh, the coast in Europe. Louise Kenney, who's an executive um, pro Vice Chancellor of the University of Liverpool, somebody I've got huge respect for. She makes such good points on Twitter. She made a very, very similar point as well. And it's this: it's this, um, you know, it's the it's the blanket coverage coverage that was given to one tragedy where five people died, against the lack of coverage given to a tragedy which happens on a daily basis. Virtually, yeah, I think many many other people, people made
0: the same point. Chris Nihal Athanaki made the same point. The interviewer from Radio Five. Um, Cat Stevens, or y- Yusuf Islam, as he's uh, as he's known now. Amazing at Glastonbury, by the way. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he made the same point. Um, I think you're right in the sense that, you know, it's a Netflix film waiting to happen, isn't it? People love a morbid rescue um, situation. The Chilean miners, the Thai football team in those caves. Um, but yeah, I, I watched yesterday Stanley Tucci's Italy. It was in Sicily on the island of Lampasuda next to, um, just off the Africa, in between Sicily and Africa. And hundreds and hundreds of people have died on, on, on boats there. And the Italian government have threatened to prosecute people who help them. I mean, what, what kind of world are we living in when you can't help people? And I don't think, uh, at the conversation we have in our family, I'm not trying to diminish what your conversation is, Chris, but yeah. the conversation we've had in our family is, you know what if the situation in this country got really bad? What if we got invaded in all sorts of war? You get on a boat and you want to escape to Ireland or you want to escape to France or something, because you're fleeing from a situation. How do you, how how would you expect to be treated when your boat landed on someone else's shores? Because you're escaping from something horrendous.
1: One thing to keep an eye out on is that the tragedy of the Greek coast and the uh, conduct of the Greek coast guards is going is getting lots of scrutiny at the moment. There's lots of question marks in terms of how quickly they responded or, or didn't respond. I'm going to um, bring some insight um, into given your background with the university. Okay. You, you want to talk about apprenticeships, skills, universities and the troubles in the higher education sector, which are starting to uh, starting to bite.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a really hot potato. And as universities are breaking up for the summer around now um, and students are returning home, your daughter's returned from her flat in Leeds, hasn't she? She has, she yeah. Has a yeah. clean yeah. flat. Yeah. So good. Um, and I think it's a really political hot potato in how the country can fund a high-skill economy and a university sector. So Labour knows that reversing its earlier policy of scrapping tuition fees is fiscally sensible. I said at the time, admittedly, I worked in a political comms role for a university. I said Labour's policy wasn't an honest promise uh, to scrap tuition fees entirely without a plan to actually how you would fund the entire sector and the and the loan book for um, for for maintenance grants and tuition fees. But at the same time, that um, costs are going up as they are for any business, any organization, energy prices, wage increases, the price of everything effectively is ticking up. Student tuition fees have not gone up. They're still at nine grand from when they first got introduced by the coalition government in 2010,
1: wasn't it? When they. Or, or at least. Did uh, they, they start at nine grand or did they go up to nine no, grand? No, they started
0: at three grand, but they went progressively up to nine grand. And um, politically, the government instituted a review called the Auger Review, where they wanted to reduce tuition fees, the impact on students to seven and a half grand a year, but they didn't push through the review to that consultation following pushback from the university sector. But my intel is telling me now that there is more money now available for apprenticeships. Now, they sound more Brexity. It's a quote, a phrase I used earlier, more practical. You get an Apprenticeship sounds better than sending your kids to university to do gender-critical studies at the University of Neesden or whatever it used to be called. You know, you can see all the optics about how it's all being lined up as a potential Tory issue. But, but actually, who's going to deliver degree apprenticeships? Who's going to deliver high-level, high-skilled apprenticeships um, um, technology and um, high skills training universities. There's an Institute of Technology being opened in Greater Manchester. Who's delivering it? Salford University. Because they are the institutions with the capacity and the capability of being able to deliver skills in a modern economy. What it what the whole sector does need is a serious overhaul of the apprenticeship levy. So that's basically half a percent on any businesses over a certain threshold payroll and the way that it's then distributed. That could potentially go through the supply chain so smaller businesses can access apprenticeship levy money in order to offset those training costs and send some of their staff on courses. Um, but they also need to clamp down on city firms, putting stockbrokers bro- stock through an MBA program, offsetting it against the levy payments, instead offering young people high-level, well-run programs that can skill up our economy in a meaningful way.
1: Yeah, I agree. No, no, no. Have absolutely. you ever written
0: about degree apprenticeships or anything like that? They're fascinating
1: No, 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 I haven't. No, really I haven't, interesting. But I haven't. But I think, I think there are two types of people come out of universities. I think the people who... And you could say this about everybody you know the graduates who think the world owes them a living and and and, and the people who come out with practical skills i had a uh, lively conversation last week with uh, with a student and uh you know it was a uh, it was quite enlightening for both of us actually i don't want to say too much because i want to give I'm talking about away, but it wasn't my kids. Needless to say, but uh, no, I think you make some. I think you make some really good points. But given the priority list that the government have got at the moment, nobody's going to yeah, tackle they that. They ain't issue. going to
0: be funding that. But it's it's a ticking time bomb, and it's it's partly some insight there into why um, university unions are on strike. I have to say, by the way, the UCU union I think are absolutely bonkers.
1: Well, why? Why? Because I mean.
0: I, yeah. Oh, some of the, sorry, it's not about that. There, there are pay disputes within yeah. the university sector, right? There is really? squeeze, squeeze on incomes, people aren't getting the pay rises they want. Vice chancellors are, by the way, they're very well remunerated. But um, lecturers are being squeezed on, on their contracts, they're being squeezed on their pay and the pensions that they're, the university sector is having to reevaluate its pension schemes, but the university college union does not do itself any favors. I do think they're absolutely bonkers. Mm. It's not on those issues. It's on things like passing motions on like the war in Ukraine and the trans issue and stuff like that. Mm. It's like the socialist workers party have taken control of it and it doesn't do the university, um, doesn't do academics any favors whatsoever.
1: Well, on that note, Michael, we're gonna go for a short interval. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big-name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. Or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress.
0: Welcome back to part two of the Northern Spin podcast in this episode. This is the section where we ask the question, anything to see here? But Chris, you want to pay some tributes to some Tories first. So back to bi- back to business
1: as usual, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we don't want to waste uh, too much energy once again on Boris Johnson, but I do want to pay tribute to some of the Tory MPs who could be bothered to turn up to uh, back a report that Boris Johnson deliberately misled the MPs over lockdown parties at Downing Street. It was interesting because... I was wondering, I mean, Rishi Sunak had a date with the, uh, I think, the Swedish Prime Minister, so he couldn't attend. And we mentioned it in last week's pod, how many of these MPs would be uh, campaigning in marginal seats. Um, In the end, 225 Tory MPs went missing in action. All the big names, Lee Anderson, you know, the people who are very, very vocal, suddenly has something else to do. They disappeared. And this... I'm not going to divide this into a gender issue, but it's absolutely fascinating how many of the Conservative MPs who actually attended to vote in favour and support the report were females, uh, high-profile females, people like uh, former Prime Minister Theresa May, who goes up in my estimation all the time, the Commons leader, Penny Morden, she, she supported it. Um, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, who hails originally from Liverpool, and heard her in an interview last week, she talks so much sense. I think these people, and, and Andy Carter, you know, the Warrington Tory MP was actually on the committee that voted and came up with the report uh, into Partygate, into Boris Johnson's uh, lying to Parliament. You know, he, for me, is an unsung hero. He, for me, is what politicians and politics should be about, politics uh, of integrity. So I I, I doff my hat to Penny Morden, Theresa May, Gillian Keegan, Andy Carter, all those MPs with the courage of their convictions to do what was right, not what was what about winning votes. And, and shame, shame on the 225 Tory MPs who who <coughs> look for an excuse not to be in Parliament. So, by my estimations, Chris, Boris Johnson now has fewer friends in
0: Parliament than he has children, by my calculations.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, you know, and there's probably a big gap as well. He is a busted flush, and uh, people will keep making the noise. And I just made the point as well. It's really important that the media need to recognise, and and we're not talking about him as much, only when it's relevant that um so that- i th- i think sunak
0: though has displayed real real weakness over this he could have come out and been unequivocal it was an open goal for him to dr- to draw a line o- on this issue and to say that ro- that um where he stood on it, but he didn't. And I think it completely plays to an image that I think people who don't think about politics very much, who make up their minds about issues, I think they're making their mind up about Rishi Sunak. And it's not that he's technocratic, competent, or any of those things. I think they're thinking he's weak. He's weak and he's robotic. And I think... He, he keeps reinforcing it, and every time I look at
1: him, I keep thinking that I tell you who is, and that should be shaking, hanging her head in shame, and that's Nadine Doris as well, <clears throat> you know, telling the world she's going to resign. she so have now missed the deadline to have a by election in July as well. she's just a dreadful nadine who exactly exactly <laughs> she what would be worse than a lettuce because obviously a lettuce was what I, did don't the mistrust. But anyway, um, now, I need to ask you a question because uh, Mm -hmm. I keep getting asked about it as well, talking about MPs, and uh, Stockport's Labour MP, Navinda Meshru, famously blocked you. Now, I know you feel there's something lacking in your life, so I do always ask you, has he seen sense and lifted that ban, or is he still banning you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm still blocked. Okay.
0: Um, But but I can see his tweets through other accounts that I have access to. Oh, good, good. There is
1: some light at the end of the tunnel as well. And in answer
0: to your question,
1: Nothing to see there. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, what, that's comedy gold. Now, a couple of Labour questions. Keir Starmer said that he won't have a resignation on his list like Boris Johnson. Anything to see here?
0: Yeah, I think that's an honest promise and a statement of intent. It reinforces Starmer's... It's a whole point, once again, about integrity. He might have rode back on some of the things that he said when he was serving in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. But on this one, like his promise to say that he'd resign if the Durham police prosecuted him over having a beer and a curry, that he'd resign. But he's being honest and straight with the public and following through on a promise to be different. It's not just the right thing to do, it's good politics.
1: Mm. Um, What do you think? I think it's a good move. And I think the thing is, you know, I think Keir Starmer is trying to, you know, display integrity and I think he does and leadership as well. I think um, you know, Johnson trashed the resignation on his system. We've still got Liz Truss's resignation on his system to come for her seven miserable weeks as prime minister. If Rishi Sunak was just to do one thing, he would uh, clip her wings and say, you know, if she comes out with a ridiculous list, he would uh, he would uh, do something about that. But I'm not sure he would. I think, if I'm honest, I think starmer has been a bit economical with the truth. He, he points out that Tony Blair didn't have a resignation on his list. Absolutely he true. Didn't. It's true. He didn't. He didn't. That is true. But 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 he doesn't say that Blair created the most life peers. Of any prime minister during his time in office, and you'll you'll pull me up on this, and you'll say he was balancing and rebalancing the House of Lords. He I was. get that, I get that. But For 374 what? life peers introduced by Tony Blair during his time as prime minister—that was, I think, that was a record. Um, but he doesn't mention it, does he, Keir? Starmer? No.
0: But I think it's fair to say as well. Not only does Keir Starmer pledge to. Uh, not make a resignation on his list, and Blair, once his job had been done, he wasn't trying to confer honours on his mates after the event. Yeah, you can completely question some of the people who received peerages under a Labour government. Absolutely, but I don't think you're comparing the two things. That it's not, it's not comparable. I think that's a fair point. And it, and it was a ten-year, it was over an eleven-year period, uh, or ten-year, thirteen-year period. Yeah, it was over a thirteen-year period um, that Labour were creating all those peers.
1: Yeah, no, I think in order
0: to rebalance and in order and the fact that they reformed the House of Lords and got rid of the hereditary peers as well in order to uh, get a legislative program through because it was stuffed full of Tories after they'd been in power for the years before that.
1: No, I think it's a fair point. I only say politicians make a claim. I think there's always a counterclaim, but you don't want to get into this tip attack politics, which you try to avoid. I do need to to mention Labour's energy policy announcement in Scotland last week. We touched on it in last week's pod. Starmer announced that the UK will grant no new licenses for oil and gas firms to drill in the North Sea if they win power. I think it's very interesting, of course, that he made this announcement in Scotland, which has obviously got the North Sea oil. And uh, Scotland's a target area, clearly, for Labour going into the next general election. I don't know if you read uh, the background. It made me chuckle. Um, But Labour had plans to take journalists to a major press conference in a green hydrogen bus, all in with their their whole, whole, uh, you know, raison d'etre of green energy. Um, Apparently, it wouldn't run. It was swapped at the last minute for a diesel model. Then the bus driver became lost and had to ask a journalist, to direct him to the venue i know it's only a bit of telltale i know it doesn't change the greater scheme of things but i think if labour do get into power which i think they will they're going to get a lot more increased scrutiny as well and this sort of thing you know it's just a bit of a laugh i know but it doesn't look good does it no clearly not but i think labour are
0: gonna to have to do something else as well which is like a more serious point um although it, you know 18 points ahead in the polls each new each new range of polls that comes out they seem even further ahead but I think as politicians and as a front bench they're going to have to delve into their backstories a little bit more tell their own stories appear a little bit more likeable a bit more human which is why I'm entirely comfortable with things like Angela Rayner on stage DJing with Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham at that event at the um, Warehouse Project I think that I think Angela is very human she bears her soul she probably as she admits herself overshares. whereas Keir Starmer is somebody who's more cautious and undershares i saw pictures over the weekend of um actually it was on a personal facebook so i shouldn't say who it was but you know a labor politician with a bucket hat and a cool pair of sunglasses at glastonbury i think you know showing off the human side but i think they'll be reluctant to do so because they always want to be photographed in a blue suit with a labor red tie shaking hands and, and and being really sensible and, and trustworthy because, as you say, you know they're carrying that Ming vase yeah. across a highly polished floor. But at some point, they've got to come across as human. Yeah, they've got to discuss, talk about their backstories. West streeting has got a great backstory. Yeah, he's got a book. I think, I it. think, Rachel, I think Rachel Reeves has. I, yeah. I, I think lots of them have. And I think they've got to become a little bit more comfortable opening themselves up to the public and saying, "We know about your struggles. We're on your side. We're driven by values that want to solve the problems that you face in everyday life." I think it's a problem that Ed Miliband never, never conquered. I don't think he came across as someone like us, but I think the, the Labour front bench and Labour politicians are stuff full of people. You know, it's beer and curry and football and all the rest of it and normal things that normal people like and raising a family and dropping kids off at school and juggling all those stuff, yeah. sorts of things. We didn't see enough of that from Yvette Cooper,
1: for instance, you know, four kids. Yeah, you're married to Red Bulls, of course. Um, But uh, no, um, you mentioned Angela Rayner. I think she is authentic. Yeah, I think think sometimes you're probably right. She probably does overshare, but I think I'd probably rather have a politician who was Sorry, authentic
0: that's, that's Angela saying that she has a tendency to overshare right okay not me commenting on no, her no. at all
1: but she was um, I mentioned her because uh, she was sharing a stage last week with the former Australian Prime Minister Julie Gilead and uh, it was at King's College London and uh, she said uh, she hinted at the fact that she thought the next Labour leader after Sir Keir Starmer would be a woman I mean given the fact the Tories have had three female Prime Ministers and I, I've got to include uh, Liz Truss in there unfortunately <laughs> yeah. um, do you think it's anything to see there yeah, definitely, absolutely, Chris. She's right. It's diabolical that Labour has only ever
0: been led by white fellows. Honestly, it's embarrassing. See, I thought the La- when I was mo- most involved in Labour, which was in twenty fifteen, and I thought the Labour leader almost certainly would be a woman, or at least someone from uh, an ethnic minority. David Lammy. Sadiq Khan, Chukra muna remember him? Liz Kendall and Yvette Cooper ended up being on the ballot and they have ended up finishing third and fourth. Um, non, none of those candidates are entirely without their flaws, but we keep getting old white guys. And it's just not right that this is the Labour Party. Anyway, that's my rant over. No? Um, okay. We've spoken a lot about housing in recent podcasts and the government is currently considering intervening in a decision on whether a controversial housing scheme in Wirral's Greenbelt can go ahead. Anything to see here?
1: Yeah, I think the thing with housing, we've spoken about the fact there not enough houses being built. I listened to a podcast today and they were talking about how many houses have been built and how many new first-time buyers there are and how much better it is now under the Conservatives than it is under Labour. You know, this is what I'm saying about throwing politics and statistics about. But what's been accepted is the government's target was 300,000 homes. They're not going to hit that target. So you get this big thing taking place at the moment in the Wirral, the uh, Lieberhume Estate. They want to build 788 homes. Good. Uh, Now, you would say that, you know, and I would get that as well. Um, Eight housing applications have been rejected by Wirral Council. The developers apparently have appealed seven of them at the moment now we know there's a lack of housing we know the government have made soundings that they want to make it easier for development to take place including on the green belt but then you get this big show of public protest as well and then what they do it gets kicked into the long grass by being referred up to michael gove to make a decision as well i think you look at wirral you look at the whole area around liverpool city region which is predominantly obviously almost exclusively um, a labour heartland as well it's. It's the question is: Will the government make these decisions and overturn appeals and allow developers to build on a green belt? Uh, I'm. I'm not sure they will. Mm, I think it comes down to the law
0: ultimately, and and I think that more often than not, you find cash-strapped councils don't have the resources, don't have the access to. The barristers and the legal teams to fight these so you increasingly see and we analyze lots of planning applications you see councils very very reluctant to go into appeals because they cost so much and they haven't got any money
1: no and, and i know chorley very well as well and they've turned down a couple of high profile applications and the but appeal, they won't be fine no the, lose on appeal this sort of developer won an on appeal and had to uh, the council had to pay the cost which they can't afford now we sometimes see apologies and there are different types of apologies sorry can sometimes be the hardest word michael and uh you know was that uh that was uh, elton john wasn't it yes yeah 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 it's keeping it topical for the kids um so last week there was an apology from sheffield council oh, yeah. over its flawed program to fell <laughs> seventeen and a half thousand street trees the guardians selling pids has been all over this and the level of I'm going to use the word persecution that Sheffield council took against people who objected to the council's policy of cutting trees was unprecedented. So uh, they've issued a five page apology from Tom Hunt, the council's new labor leader, and the council's chief executive, Kate Josephs, included this line, failing and making mistakes is a part of life, but refusing to listen and learn is a mistake we can never repeat. What's your take on real, really overt public shows of apology?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's right. It's the right thing to do. It, a, a bit of contrition. I mean, I'm, you know, I literally, I literally preach forgiveness and ask for forgiveness every Sunday. At church. So mm. yeah, yeah, think it's the right thing to do. What well, I always say with, with, with humility and to, and me, and when you mean it one thing i do really dislike is those pretty patel style apologies where if the
1: person is offended then of course i apologize yeah, well, Dominic Rab's the same. Yeah, Dominic Rab. You know, he says if, in the unlikely if- event that I've op- I've offended civil servants Ugh. who are obviously thin skinned, you know, and then he says that he justifies it. No, I agree. Anyway, All right. who've we got on manoeuvres this week? Well, we've got a couple actually, and I'm keeping it uh, keeping it fair. We've got one from the Conservatives and we've got one from Labour. Two okay. MPs. Okay. Now the first is. Tory MP, Nick Fletcher. I name checked him a couple of weeks ago because he spoke at an event in Doncaster. He is uh, another one of those. Is he Yeah. He's another one of those Northern Red Wolf seats. The only one in 2019. has got a, uh, not the biggest majority in the world. He faces losing his seat. He falls for me into the um, Scott Benson, Lee Anderson category of talking all things woke. For example, he wants pronouns taken out of school. Uh, last week, he seemed to blame labor and Brexit for high interest rates. <laughs> and somebody made the point. You've been in power for 13 years. Uh, um, Um, Now, he was one of seven MPs, only seven. You mentioned there are fewer MPs supporting Boris Johnson. He's got kids. So he was one of Boris Johnson's kids by voting against the Partygate report saying that Johnson had quote broken the shackles of socialism in the north i absolutely hate hate phrases like this he posted a picture of himself on twitter which was returning home after a tough week at parliament i thought to myself you know what i should post a picture of myself on a friday saying i've had a tough week look at me you know vote me in the round
0: tables i've done
1: yeah he's, he's definitely definitely on manoeuvres i don't think and no disrespect to nick fletcher you are welcome on the show I don't think no, he's, he's not very welcome on the show, actually. But his opinions you are not would be, welcome on the show. Okay, but his opinions would be valid, as would a no, they're not. Labour MP. No. no, they would. I think we might have to get your wife in to diffuse the situation, Michael, <laughs> because I sense he's kicking like off. A, I think he sounds like a proper balloon yeah. and that we are trying
0: to raise the game and raise the tone of intellectual debate. And I don't want people like that coming on our podcast, Chris. How do,
1: how do you define a balloon? A balloon? Yeah.
0: A, uh, I'm using polite words because you don't like swearing, yeah. and we don't want to get that little e number on our yeah. uh, on our podcast.
1: Just full of air. Is that your view? Is that your definition of a balloon? Maybe. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you another balloon, but this time wearing the red rosette of Labour. Right. I'm going to give you East Hull MP Carl Turner. Carl Turner, you would be welcome on the show because I take a slightly uh, different view than my co-host Michael Taylor. Now, you call Scott Scott Benton uh, still, obviously without the party whip Lee Anderson, Jonathan yeah. Gullis, the thick right. Yeah. Carl Turner, for me. Seems to be the Labour equivalent who just tweets insults. Now, he rarely tweets anything about his East Hull constituency. The problem is. Okay, is that I think he makes himself sound like a bit of an idiot. He tweeted this last week. Britain's interest rates up again by 0.5% to a mouth watering 6%. Twitter had to run a correction underneath to say this is untrue. The actual <laughs> figure, the actual figure is 5%. Now you might say to yourself, hey, this is just a one-off, simple type of error, big fat fingers, like we've all got. Last year, Turner had to issue another. Correction, after accusing the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and former Health Secretary Matt Hancock of blowing $37 billion on the NHS Test and Trace app. The figure relates to the entire NHS Test and Trace scheme in its first two years, not just the app. So once again, you might say, well, he was nearly right. But what I'm saying is, given the facts and given how closely Keir Starmer is managing this candidate selection process, I am surprised that he allows a loose cannon like Carl Turner Off his leash, you know, firing mistakes all over the place. And Michael. Surely you've got to agree with me on that. Well, he was obviously wrong about the interest rate stuff, and I,
0: and I think the phrase I mouth watering. Yeah, I think I, I think he meant eye water eye
1: watering, didn't he? Rather yeah. than mouth watering, unless you've misquoted. Well, him. if I've made a mistake, and I'll will ke- ah, check that in the interview. If I've go. made a mistake, yeah. and he has used the word yeah. eye watering, I, I would apologise. You, you mentioned three. it to me, and I looked down his timeline, and I just
0: thought he's one of those very tribal, very sort of front-footed, pugnacious, street-fighting, backbench MPs who tends to highlight Tory mistakes, Tory hypocrisy, and he's very much on the side of his constituents in East Hull. You know, he does plenty of tweets about them. <laughs> I, I think he's quite you know, he's, he's an interesting and pugnacious Labour politician. And he also retweeted something that reminded me of where I was a year ago, which was um, on the streets of Wakefield campaigning for Simon Lightfoot. I'm going to issue
1: a public apology to Carl Turner MP. (laughs) I've just looked back at his tweet. I did write this actually quite late. Britain's interest rate up again by 0.5% to an eye-watering 6%. Don't let the toys pretend it's not their fault. Ah, he did spell there T-H-E-R-E. So, you know, I do apologise for saying mouth-watering instead of eye-watering but grammar T-H-E-R-E instead of T-H. Chris,
0: failing and making mistakes is a part of life but refusing to listen and learn is a mistake we can never repeat
1: and that's why have we, have we got that clear and that's why they put rubbers and pencils for michael because we all make mistakes and on that note we're going to go to an interval
0: so i've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then thebusinessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, businessdesk.com for all your regional news.
1: Welcome back to part three of Northern Spin Podcast. Now, Michael, you've been busy. I've been keeping an eye on what you've been up to on social media. What have you been up to? Oh, it's only the half of it, Chris. That's only the edited
0: highlights, and you don't even get to see my Instagram. So, yeah, I've been up to all <laughs> sorts of different things. I did a pro-Manchester event um, a couple of weeks ago. We didn't really talk about it last week. It was about artificial intelligence, and I'm still coming to terms with it, really. It was, it was quite an intellectual journey, really. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I've been to Morecambe again. I went, and it was the, the Chatham House rule applied. Now, I got schooled on this on LinkedIn for for saying Chatham House rules. Apparently, there is only one Chatham House
1: rule. Do you know what it is? Well, you can't talk publicly about anything that's said between those four walls. That's how I would understand it. Not
0: quite. You can talk about what was discussed, but you can't say who said what about something. So you can say, yeah, we had a really robust discussion about artificial intelligence, and Dan Sod again for instance, specifically said that um, Chat GPT is as if it was written by a 14-year-old, but some of the more advanced system, right. which he did, but I wouldn't be able to say that if that event had been under the Chatham House rule. Right. The Chatham House rule. Yeah. So there you go, Learn yes. something. Um, so I went to the Northwest Business Leadership Team away day, which was under the Chatham House rule, so I can't specifically refer to anything that was said. Um, but I'm absolutely kicking myself because... My team. There was four teams of about ten, six people, and my team got to the last two. We got forty out of fifty in the quiz, and if we'd got this question, which I knew in my heart, the answer, which was, do you know the year when Colonel Sanders first opened a KFC in the UK
1: on Fishergate in Preston? Do you know the year? Well. I know that the first KFC was opened in Preston. Um, yep. I knew that fact. And it was Our before, team in 1977. Which before I was I was born in 72 it's before I'm gonna go for 1965, May. It was, yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, you looked it up, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else have I been doing? I watched a bit of Glastonbury on
0: the TV, so I thought Manic Street Preachers are amazing. Uh, the pretenders were brilliant as well, as I knew because I saw them at Kite Festival two weeks before. I read a really miserable piece in the New Statesman about Waterstone's dad, another demographic, which I thought was a bit of a shooting themselves in the foot, really, because they're describing off their readers, you know, the sort of people who buy Malcolm Gladwell and Rutger Berman books, and they're slagging them off. Um, what else they've done? I ran 5K, as I've done for the last four weeks, really enjoyed that. Well... I didn't enjoy it at the time but I enjoyed the feeling afterwards yeah. and, and we saw a street fight outside the co in Marple.
1: I don't enjoy running during the run but I enjoy having done it and yeah. I yeah, I try and do two 2k runs every week. It's not much I know but it's better than nothing.
0: Yeah well um, maybe try and up, up your
1: uh, up your distance. Okay. Yeah yeah. Uh, I had a busy week you mentioned Manchester. I uh, hosted a panel discussion at the Trailblazers tech conference it took place at the Larry Hotel where we interviewed four companies who have made our Manchester startups 2.0 list three of the people on the panel uh, of four were women. I think that's really interesting as well, because uh, women are massively underrepresented, uh, massively underrepresented in the tech sector, but they also we were talking afterwards about some of the challenges that they face in attracting investment, which in itself is uh, eye-watering or mouth-watering, whether I get my phrases right. Now, I had a big, big, big event last week happened to me. I went down to Cardiff, went down to, uh, to watch Harry Styles in concert. In Cardiff, I have never seen so much fluff and uh, you know colours as there is among the uh, uh, among the uh, audience. And my my daughter bought one of the what do you call them the uh, feathery boa things? Feather boas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fifteen quid this woman selling on the street <laughs> wanted. She got it for ten. And I said to her, "You've been ripped off. Half of it's in the back of my car. It's fallen apart." Sixty five thousand fans in the Principality Stadium, nearly all of them female, screaming for one man. And it wasn't uh, the co-host of Northern Spin. But what it got me thinking about is there was complete and utter adoration of Harry Styles, who obviously held some from uh, these parts. And uh, he worked at a bakery, didn't he? Was it Holmes? Holmes? No idea. Yeah, yeah, he worked at Holmes Chapel. I'm sure it was. Um, anyway, I watched Lewis Capaldi at Glastonbury. I only watched a bit on social media, and he's um, got issues. He's, he did a, a documentary, didn't he, about challenges of uh, mental health. And he struggled to finish his set... And the audience, the crowd of, you know, it looked like 100,000 people, they finished the set. Deeply, deeply moving. But it just got me thinking about the level of fame that people in the public eye, whether it's Harry Styles, Lewis Capaldi, Sporting stars, and this, mm. that and the other. I know they're recompensed. They put themselves under a lot of pressure, don't they? 100%. I think that's the point you're making. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Essentially, you mentioned that, and I, I picked up this book at the Kite Festival last week by an author called Ian Winwood, who's a music journalist and's written for The Telegraph and Rolling Stone, NME, loads of other outlets. And he's written a book called Bodies, Life and Death in Music. And he talks about the... Um, the awful, awful number of young uh, musicians who take their own life. 27 seems to be an age at which many musicians die. Kurt Cobain, uh, Ian Curtis, many others. Ian Curtis was a lot younger than that. Um, And watching Glastonbury, um, one of my favorite bands is Manic Street Preachers. They were on the Glastonbury stage. And it reminded me that they lost their fourth member, Richie Edwards, when he disappeared in 1995. Still no um, conclusive Um, no no satisfactory conclusion as to his whereabouts or whether he's alive or dead, but he was declared uh, missing, presumed dead in 2008. And there's such a long list. Nick Drake, Kurt Cobain, Ian Curtis, Michael Hutchins, Amy Winehouse, all artists I really, really love who've all been taken too soon and sometimes tragically by their own hand and, you know, maybe the, the, the whole thing of the, the the amount of substance abuse in the music industry, the pressure that people put themselves under, it, um, it is a high-risk a high risk industry but, for but sure. But if you
1: look at the number of people who've appeared on reality TV programs as well who've died early, right. that's, that's scary as well, you know, and gets back to the whole issue of mental health. Um, I've got to recommend a podcast that I've listened to. Okay. Now, this might sound slightly unusual for me because, as I say, I don't like unnecessary swearing, but where swearing is valid, I think it's fine. So there's a podcast on BBC Sounds called Crawl Jonathan Pye. What I love about it is I can listen to all 10 podcasts um, rather than have to wait uh, week after week. Now, um, by way of background, if you've not heard it, so Jonathan Pye is a journalist, a BBC journalist, who unexpectedly finds himself hosting a live, phone-in radio show. His outbursts have been likened to a young Alan Partridge, um, but it's good fun. I would love to see you hosting a live um, BBC, you know, phoning show, but being completely honest in your responses, I think you'd have a cult following. Yeah, reckon?
0: Why don't yeah. you suggest it to your contacts at the BBC? I though? will do, I will yeah, do. Yeah, I will do. But you said that he's been likened to a young Alan Partridge. Chris, that's the joke. Yeah, I know, yeah. He's playing a character just as... Steve Coogan is playing a character called Alan Partridge, who is a hapless radio local radio presenter on was he on North Norfolk Digital? Absolutely, days. yeah. Um, similarly, yeah, that's the Jonathan Pye persona. Yeah. He's, he's playing a character.
1: He plays it very well as well. Yes,
0: good. Uh, Anyway, that's all for episode eight of season four of the Northern Spin Podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management and sponsor the podcast, please get in touch. Please review us on Apple Podcasts or on any other platform. Don't forget to press the subscribe button because that translates into our numbers. Follow us on Twitter at at Northern underscore Spin1 or watch us on YouTube. We need to up our game on YouTube, by the way. I had some advice from my, from my, uh, from Kid4 yeah who uh, told me what we need to, to be doing thank you to what media for recording this podcast special mention to elliot taylor for providing the music or kid five as he's known in my house my name is michael taylor and my name
1: is uh, kid one chris, chris. mcguire